0: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. So just before we get started, I wanted to let you know that I'm hosting the first live episode of The Compass. It's going to be on Sunday, November 6th at 7 p.m. at Arts on Site. A great nonprofit art space on St. Mark's in the East Village. My guests are going to be my lovely husband, actor Frankie J. Alvarez, and actress and singer-songwriter Laura Gratmans. It's a $10 suggested donation at the door. If you'd like to come, please email me at thecompasslive at gmail.com. I'm going to make a reserved list of the first 50 people who RSVP, SVP. Um, If you can't get on the list, just show up on the night of and we'll try to fit as many people as we can in. Also, if you do reserve a spot and end up changing your plans before the night of, just let me know so I can get some other people on the list. More information on the Facebook page, but I hope to see you there. It should be a lot of fun. My guest today is Jason Gray Platt. Jason is a wonderful playwright who I had the good fortune of meeting through a dear friend a few years ago. I'm honored he shared his thoughts with me. He is delightful. And I hope you enjoy the 50th episode of The Compass. So how do you try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist?
0: Uh, I'm not good at it. I mean, I usually end up there, and the question for me is like, okay, how do you get out of it? Yeah. Caught in these cycles where you're just telling yourself over and over again like oh you are have no talent you're like a worthless piece of shit (laughs) and it's kind of like you know in a very exacerbated way like walking a, a path through a garden and it just gets deeper and deeper and deeper over again like neurologically until you're so deep into this path into this rut that you can't even see over the edge and you're like okay how do I climb back out over the edge um and Usually, the most effective thing for me is to turn to art I read a lot of poetry uh, or I go to to museums and just try to immerse myself in something that is beautiful and has meaning and it's like okay there are there are good things in the world maybe I can contribute to that Um, I've also been in analysis for the last few years which has been incredibly helpful Mm -hmm. Um, I have a very supportive partner um, which is incredibly helpful yeah I think it's really hard when you do the work that we do I mean probably for anybody to both be in a very uncertain place professionally, and also to not have a very stable personal life, uh, and you sort of hope that in your life you get one or the other. But when, but to have somebody you can go home to, and you know, because I am with somebody who has a history of also working in the theater and the creative world, she understands in a really great way and is able to offer advice that is helpful and things like that. But yeah, but I have I, it's a, it's a problem. I I get. Uh, Compulsive and, and obsessive about the dark place a lot. Yeah.
1: yeah. Have you found that you've gotten better at realizing, like you still go there, but maybe yeah. you, maybe you spend less and less time. I
0: spend less time there for sure. Yeah. And you know, when the sort of obsessive thoughts come up, I I now sort of know why they're there and where they come from, and I can say to myself like, oh yeah, this again. I I've, I've talked about. I've thought about this. Right. And. It still takes a while to get out, but it's not as debilitating in a sense. Yeah. You know, the worst thing that can happen is that it just stops you from working and you go to a place of kind of like anhedonia of like, I don't care anymore. You know, none of this matters. Nothing it's really kind matters. of static. Yeah. And the only thing that really brings you out of it is to just keep working. Yeah. You know, eventually, hopefully, it'll, it'll release.
1: I was curious about this. I was thinking about it earlier before you came over that, especially for a writer, when it is such a singular activity, I assume there's some isolation involved that might, you know, be really enjoyable in some ways, but also contribute to the dark place. If it's you... true.
0: It's a double-edged sword. You know, there's times when I think to myself, I kind of wish I was a novelist or a poet, and then I could live in a cabin in the woods and never have to deal with, with any people ever again. <laughs> um, but also, at the same time, you know, you write the play, and you think like, okay, great, but it's not even until people have read it, until it's changed like, it's nothing, in a way. In the same way that, right? You know, if you wrote poetry or you write fiction, obviously you want other people to experience it, but it's it's closer to being finished in a way that a piece of theater is not. Uh, and so to then be alone with this thing where you need other people, is like, oh, now what do I do? Because, you know? Right, yeah, right, so right. It, it can be both sides.
1: Do you find, like, reaching out to people to have a reading, just so you can hear it, like, is that ever... Something that's helpful to take, it, take you out of it and you feel like that's a resource I can reach for right now? Or is it like um, feeling like you don't, I don't want to, sh- it's not finished. I don't want to share it.
0: I, I don't I, want them
1: to judge it since I know it's not there yet, but I, judging, I need input. <laughs> yeah, the
0: judging part is a lesser problem for me because I have enough friends who are performers who I, I trust, you know, do right. the work. The bigger problem for me is I know that I'm basically asking friends to like give up their time to help me develop this thing. And I'm very sensitive to, as I th- you know, so all we all being young in our field, it's like, oh, we all do this stuff and we don't get paid and we give up so much of our time. And so right. I try not to ask the same people over and over again. I try to only ask if it's in like a really, it's ready to be done. Um, it's also a lot about like my own personal stuff about like not wanting to bother a burden people. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, it's a serious thing for us because, you know, as a performer, I'm sure you've had the same thing of like, you know, people ask you to read things. And you're working, right? That's your that's your job. That's your craft. But you're not getting paid for it. Right. Uh, and so, you know, it's just a delicate thing to navigate.
1: I know you've participated in a lot of these different, like, workshops and things. And, like, we kind of met through Rachel, but also through Friends at the New Harmony Project mm-hmm. and stuff like that. How does being engaged in, like, that kind of communal focus on your work, how, yeah, how does that work for you? Do you enjoy that kind of... focused yeah
0: those are the i mean new harmony project was in particular fantastic having you know there's a lot of programs that are sort of two weeks ish like the o'neill bear playwrights festival um sundance all around where you can get it up on its feet and have time to rewrite and do a couple of readings and then go back and do some more rewrites is like immensely helpful um you know it reminds me of when i was in grad school and had those opportunities because I went I went to Columbia, so there was a directing program and an acting program, and they, at least at that time, really encouraged a lot of cross-pollination and for you to work with one another. And so, you know, it, it gives you insights that you won't get just from sitting there and reading it by yourself, um, and even, you know, a, a cold reading, uh, because to be able to have actors spend a lot of, you know, multiple hours with a piece and to have a director who can, you know, speak to things in a way that I can't speak to things because I don't have that skill set. Uh, it's just incredibly helpful. New Harmony was amazing. Yeah.
1: How did you start writing? Did you kind of always gear towards playwriting or how did that happen for you?
0: No, I uh, wrote ever since I was a kid, like very, very young. But I wrote fiction and, and short stories and um, I was a huge Agatha Christie fan. Like, I read like all the Hercule Poirot novels when I was a kid uh-huh. and so of course I wrote my own murder mystery at one point. And then I was in high school, uh, my senior year of high school, and I fell in love with this young woman mm-hmm. who was an actress. And she knew I was a writer, and she said, "Oh, well, you, you know, why don't you write me a play?" And I was like, well, I'll "Do whatever you want." To <laughs> uh, and I did, and it was awful. It was so bad. It was the prototypical first play about someone who was in love with someone who didn't like them back, and so the act break is like they try to commit suicide, and you know, terrible. <laughs> so you wrote Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, I wrote Romeo and Juliet. All my best thoughts were stolen by the ancients. Um, (laughs) But, you know, there was something about it that just clicked. You know, you have those moments in life where it sort of feels like the concrete has just set in a way, and then you can build on it. Hmm. Uh, And even though, I mean, I'm sure at the time I thought it was amazing, it was like, oh, this is a, this is, there's something here that I have not experienced before. Uh, So I kept doing it, and I had already basically planned to go to vassar were going for undergrad because they have a really great creative writing program in the english department and it just out of complete happenstance they also have a fantastic student theater uh sort of world uh and i started doing things in the jar program and i just kept writing and i just kind of never went back and now I, I probably couldn't write a short story if you put a gun in my head
1: <laughs> how does your family like react to you being an artist have they always been supportive of that choice
0: they've been uh, amazingly supportive actually what happened was my senior year of college my whole life i was sort of just it was the default that i would be an attorney every my parents are both attorneys i see family business everybody uh and i had not even thought about it it was just like okay this is what i you know we used to watch law and order like for fun
1: and you're an only child
0: i have a much older brother and sister okay um and so my senior year of college i was like well you know what i'll apply to a bunch of law schools apply to a bunch of playwriting schools and we'll just see what happens (laughs) And I got waitlisted at playwriting schools but didn't get in and got into a, a few law schools. So I was like, all right, you know what, I'll, just, I'll be a lawyer. So I was going to go to law school in Virginia. Okay. I had my corral assigned in the library. I had my dorm room all set up. And I was literally, we were, it was like the middle of August, and my parents and I were trying to decide how to get, like, when what, what I drive across country when I ship my car out there, what to do. And they both said, you know, you don't seem very excited about it. And I sort of thought about it, and I was like, you know, I guess I'm, I'm not super excited about it. And they were the ones who really told me, they're like, you know, if you don't want to do this, don't do it. You know, don't just do it because it's the thing that you always thought you were going to do. And so I was like, all right, screw it. I'm, and so I moved to New York. I had met uh, Jeffrey Jackson Scott, who at that time was working at New York Theater Workshop at Bassor when they were doing a workshop there. He was like, hey, do you want to be a literary intern? I was like, sure, I'll do that. I'll work at, I was working at Barnes & Noble, you know, <laughs> and I just grabbed, And so I just like popped up. Wow. Yeah. And so they, and you know, my parents, I think both come from, um, backgrounds where they, all they wanted for their children was like for them to be, for my parents to be successful and then like their kids to be happy, you know? And so they don't really care that what I'm doing as long as it's fulfilling and satisfying. And it's also so different from what they do that they, I think have a, a much more respect for it than they probably should <laughs> because it's so, you know, it's just so foreign to their world. And now, you know, they never saw theater. So now, you know, they see a lot of theater and they, mm-hmm. sort of, they actively try to engage with what I do.
1: That's really just, wonderful. That's wonderful.
0: I appreciate it so much. Um, but sometimes they're really proud of me for like things that I'm like, that's eh, not, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, but... But I, I'll take it. Aw,
1: yeah. that's really amazing to have that support it system. Is. I'm very
0: fortunate for that. Yeah.
1: yeah. What sort of collaborative relationships have you built over your time in New York that you find are um shaping what you're doing now or the people that you met right maybe right when you moved here that are still involved in your work so yeah. I think that's fascinating with like playwrights and directors who find each other or a playwright and an actor who have this connection
0: I was very I've been, I've been very fortunate also in that because I the first person I ever met so I got this uh, internship with New York Theatre Workshop and I started out here and the first person like my first New York friend was this young woman, Jessica Fish, who was a director, she now lives in Chicago. Uh, but, you know, we we were like in the crucible of being interns together in this big theater. Uh-huh. And, you know, she was like, oh, show me a play, I showed her a play, we started working together. And now we've been working together for a decade. Uh even though she, you know, we're in different cities. So that's been really great. And then I went my I, I went to grad school eventually only a year after I got out of college, which in retrospect it was probably too soon. Hmm. But I did I um, also have a lot of lasting relationships that come out of that. I um, a director, Michael Terry Garver, who I'm very close with and work a lot with, dramaturg, Jeremiah Davis, you know, a lot of people. And my relationships from, from Vassar have, have been fortunate too because I'm in a theatre company called Woodshed Collective mm-hmm. that was originally started by a group of people at Vassar and then sort of exported it to the city. And so I, most of the people I work with I've known them for like eight or nine years at this point or more.
1: Have you been involved with the Woodshed Collective like since it was started or I wasn't just at recently?
0: College. Uh, And then around, and I wasn't originally in the city, I think 2013-ish, there was a sort of merging of of sort of two groups of people um, in in the collective. And I went, uh, Michael Terragagher went, um, a number of other artists, some collegiate people. uh, And that's sort of when I joined as well.
1: I know you did. I want to hear about that project you did with them last year, the...
0: Empire. Yeah,
1: the travel agency yeah. one because I didn't get to see it because it was such a small audience. I but I think it's so cool, and I want to hear about how you guys came up with it and sure. developed it.
0: You know, it's the, the small audience thing was both what it had to be for the show to work, but also incredibly frustrating in so many ways because so few people got to see it. And what you know, most of what it does are big installations in which, you know, they take over warehouses or old churches, and the audiences are 100 people a night, and you're just sort of walking through the space. So that was that was a shift. Uh, but the way we came up with it was we had done, we, we tried to do the sort of immersive equivalent of a new works festival uh-huh. the year before, and so we've actually, we were sort of just like trying out a lot of different methodologies for immersive work. So we had one where there was a show that was like in a car, and you got picked up in a car, and this little scene happened, We had one that was on the F train to Coney Island.
1: Would you see all of these in succession? Or just like like whatever day you were on? Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, And there were a couple of others. And then we were like, all right, so what worked here and what was interesting to us? And so once we sort of decided what the methodologies were that were interesting, we came up with this narrative of uh, this sort of secret organization. I I basically refer to it as like if Thomas Pynchon had written an Indiana Jones movie. (laughs) It's like this secret organization that is controlled something in the water that decides where the empires have been in the history of the world. Mm. And now it has been in New York and somebody's like trying to take it away and all this stuff. Uh, and then, you know, one of the other big things about our shows is where it's going to happen because they're all site specific. And so we were talking to New York city and the city had a space, uh, in South street seaport that had been empty since Sandy, uh, it had been just like totally devastated. And it's now slated, I think, they're going to eventually turn it into a, a huge hotel, like a boutique hotel. Mm-hmm. But for the past few years, it's been just sort of sitting there. And they said, like, well, yeah, I mean, if you can put electricity in and you can put in plumbing, like, by you know, by all means. Uh huh. And so we took over four or five rooms in this in this huge building in Telstra Seaport, just for the show. Just for the show, basically. Um, and then it started at a payphone in the financial district, and then you went on a car. And then you went on a train, and you were walking all around. And eventually, sort of home base was this building. And the last you know, 30 minutes or so sort of took place there. Uh, and yeah, that's uh, what it was.
1: Oh, see, I didn't realize that it went to many different locations. I just remember you saying that it took place in a car. Yeah. And that was why like, it was such limited tickets and all of that.
0: That was the thing. is about, well, there's two, there's two sections when you're in a car. Mm-hmm. And so in total, probably 15 to 20 minutes of it is that. And so we could only do four people... Per show, and we did three shows a night, so it was like twelve people a night, right? Uh, which is just insanity. <laughs> and the other thing is that you know all of our work uh, is free. We try to make it free. Amazing. Um, and so because of that, demand is much higher than it would be for you know a show that you're charging one hundred fifty dollars. Right,
1: right, right. Yeah. So how many shows did you end up doing total?
0: That's a good question. We ran it for about I want to say a month, maybe a month and a half, okay. three shows a night. So yeah, I think we okay. got a few hundred people through.
1: That's really amazing. Yeah. So how do you guys deal with um like the financial side of it if you're striving to provide free experiences but you always- got to get plumbing and electricity?
0: Yeah. We have a lot of both private and foundation government support. And then, you know, the other part of it is and I think this is true with a lot of immersive companies that I've noticed is you always have a bar. Yes. You know? That is helpful. On the one hand because people like to drink but also that's you know it's a great way to to make some money uh and we also we worked it in so that it was like part of the experience at one point because this elixir was called ambrose <laughs> um, so like have some in interesting uh, but yeah that's it's it is a difficult part of it yeah sure.
1: are you involved a lot in that kind of producing side of it when you're working with them or are you just I'm
0: the- you're the writer I'm the business manager for Woodshed. Oh, okay, I also so like a lot. My side gig for my life is I'm a bookkeeper for various sort of arts organizations. Okay. Um, so I I deal with it on the back end. I'm not in charge of talking to people or getting money. Uh, but you know our our show for 2017 I won't be too specific in case it doesn't happen. But it, it's a co-production with a with one really big theater organization. Um, and one sort of uh, a little bit smaller organization, but, you know, part of it is that it's going to be a huge-scale thing, and it's not something that we could do by ourselves. You know, we just couldn't raise that money. Um, and I think, but, I, you know, that's also something that a lot of theaters are doing right now with co-productions to share the costs. Uh, just, in, it's the sort of the financial climate that we're in right now. It's, it's tight. So. Yeah. But
1: we'll, see. well, I was going to ask you about how you kind of patchwork together your income um, between or with writing stuff. So how how did bookkeeping come into it
0: uh it happened totally by happenstance when i graduated from grad school i got a job at the Wooster group mm-hmm. um, and i was the administrator there for about two and a half years uh and so the entire office staff at least at that point was like four people um and so i was in charge of the accounting and insurance um all you know all the sort of bookkeeping stuff and a lot of other you know day-to-day things office supplies and i had uh very little experience in the sort of necessary, like I didn't know how to use QuickBooks. Yeah. You know, I I've used financial software. I do it for myself, but sort of the real like business QuickBooks, no idea. Yeah. But I think they they liked me and they thought I would be a good fit. And at the end of the day, you, you actually do pick it up pretty quickly. It's something you can learn on the job, pretty fast. And so when I left, I amazingly had this very useful skill
1: set. That's really incredible.
0: <laughs> and I, yeah. And so. I've continued to do it for, I've been doing it for Woodshack for a long time. I have for Space on Rider Farm for a few years. And so it's a very nice day job because it's a few days a week. Um, It's usually very flexible. A lot of it is is virtual. Um, And so it's sort of the perfect fit.
1: And you're still working to support other artistic organizations, which is nice, you know.
0: I'm mainly working with the organization. So it's something it's a world that I know, sort of understand what they mean. When they're like, oh, yeah, we had a reading.
1: Right. It's like, oh,
0: I know what that is. So that's been, that's been the primary. And then, you know, you cobble together fellowships and things here and there. Uh, I also do industrials from time to time. I'm doing a, Hmm. um, it's called the, I'm writing something for the Future of Storytelling Festival, which is taking place in October. Um, A colleague of mine from Wichita and I are doing sort of like pop-up theater things. So things like that. I've worked for... AMC networks a few years ago when they did their uh, upfronts and they had a big immersive experience and so yeah you just sort of do what you can yeah
1: Yeah. do you feel like did they do a good job of like in grad school like teaching you about because I as a ignorant actor don't actually know that much about uh, the business part of it for playwrights like about oh well if you get a commission you get this and then but then later, when the plays actually finish, you get this cut, and th- you need to be conscious of this, and like.
0: No, I, I know nothing about any of that. Yeah, me either. Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. No, we didn't. There were no sort of dedicated business classes uh-huh. or um, financial classes, and that's it's an interesting question as to whether that should be part of the uh, yeah no it's true part of you you says like oh well yeah of course like this is your profession right
1: like we had a cobbled together businessy classes at juilliard our last year and Mm -hmm. somebody told us like what you should be keeping track of for taxes
0: but no that's right like the tax stuff is very helpful Mm -hmm. right because that's a that's a really gray murky area i think for a lot of artists of like okay what can i expense and also um you know there's been a lot of back and forth recently there was a decision in the supreme court about what you get to constitute as a occupation, whether or not you're making the majority of your income based on something. That's tricky. It was a woman who, <clears throat> I hope I'm recalling this right, as a, as a painter, I mean, she has pieces like in MoMA in their collections, but she hadn't been making recently a lot of money from her work. And yet she was saying, oh, she was a painter. She was deducting all of these things. And the IRS was like, no, you're not a painter. And at a certain point, it's like, OK, why does the state get to decide who I am and what my job is? <laughs> you know, and this is Capitalism, um, but so they went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court was like, no, no, she she has pieces in MoMA, she's she's a painter, right? And so it it's going to have a huge effect, I think, on, on sort of, uh, what artists get to do. I hope I didn't. This, just was, recently. Financial this was recently. This was recently. This was, I think, within the last year, a year and
1: a half. Okay, I'm going to look that up. Um,
0: but it's yeah, it's it's difficult.
1: Yeah, it's so murky.
0: There was a, a series in um, Dramatist Magazine this past year, which is like the playwriting magazine. Uh, for the dramatist Guild, about taxes. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about, it was a uh, transcription of a, I think at a conference they had been talking about it. And they happened to have an, a lawyer at the conference who was like, you know, not representing the audience a private attorney, but was saying what their perspective was. And he was saying that there are lots and lots of people in the world, in America, I'm sure this is true, who are like, oh yeah, my hobby is private jets. Or, you know, or I have a hobby that is uh, like collecting horses.
1: Or they'll say that that's what I love.
0: And so tax uh, uh, IRS auditors are like, okay, what here, what is your hobby and what is your profession? And if you try to claim that, like, oh, I'm a professional old car collector and so I'm going to write off these $50,000 cars. Yeah, Jay Leno. Right? (laughs) Um, So they're very skeptical. You know, as I guess if you put yourself in their shoes, of course you would be because lots of people try to cheat their taxes. Um, But you know, based on the, what I was reading in this article, the process of proving to them that you are an artist by profession is incredibly onerous uh, because they are understaffed, the IRS, and so you, you end up having to write this long, like, narrative about your entire year of, like, these are all the people that I met with, and these are all the things that I did, and you have to send it to them because they don't have enough staff to just sort of sit down and talk to you and be like, okay, so tell me. You, it well, sad. it's also, you
1: wonder how much imagination they have, because it really is, what we do is hard to understand. It's hard to describe to someone, just as if if I was in a wor- a world where me and all of my friends were lawyers, I would understand everything about that world, but as I am who I am, I don't.
0: Right, it's true. Uh, so you
1: hope that those people they, they, yeah, the at the IRS are trained records. to put themselves in other people's <laughs> shoes yeah. and one give of, them the benefit of the doubt.
0: One of the playwrights who was in, the, was in this article was saying that her her tax attorney essentially like just printed out 15 of her plays and like sent them to the IRS and like put them on the desk. <laughs> like, that seems like the best option. Just flood them with paper and they'll be like okay we can, okay.
1: Yeah that sounds like a, a yeah. wonderful option. So where are you at at this moment with New York City? Are you uh, sticking it out?
0: I don't know. Uh a lot of it's been a decade this is like my decade mark mm-hmm. and my family lives in California uh, and I've now been back east because I went to undergrad back east for almost 15 years, which is m- almost half of my life. And you grew
1: up in California I grew, up, well? I
0: grew up in Arizona and then in California, okay. so like the west. Uh, and I would like to be closer to my family. Um, and, and part of that, of course, is that, you know, TV is a part of what you're thinking about when you're a playwright and you're a writer and sort of what you want to do with your life. And I've yeah. been trying to do some more of that. My partner um, is currently at a fellowship at a hospital in Boston that will be yes. up in June, and part of the discussion will be where she has job opportunities. Mm-hmm. And she and I have have talked about you know potentially L.A. or um, Denver. Also, my brother lives in Boulder, which I think is just gorgeous. Uh, but it's something that we're looking at and. It's you know, it's it's hard to say because I I wouldn't say that I've exhausted New York's possibilities. There's so much in New York, how could you exhaust it? But it's also, no matter where you are in your life, at a certain point, I think you just want to try something else and move on. Uh, and so, LA I think beckons.
1: I mean, that's amazing that it's also close to your family, so you yes. could kind of, you know,
0: yeah, her two things lives at once in Texas. So mm-hmm. it's close-ish to them. It's not super close. Um, but I think it would be it would be positive in, in ways that are not just about my career as well. Yeah. I think raising a child in New York is hard, mostly because the school thing is just so it's just absurd. I know. The privacy, the competition, the money, it's just outrageous. Uh and so the idea of that just boggles the mind really.
1: Yeah. Jason, just for the listener, Jason's partner, Rachel Rush, was on a previous episode. I don't remember the number right now, but it's amazing. Number one. (laughs) Number one in Jason's heart. Um, So go back and listen to that. She's great. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about the TV stuff, because I know, I mean, it's one way to make money as actors or writers. It
0: is. It's also, it's such an interesting time right now.
1: There's a lot of good TV.
0: There's a lot of good TV, and also just sort of... the question of where media is going and what it's going to become, you know, is cable going to break up? Um, are they going to unbundle all of these channels? And is it going to be the demise of cable? Or, like everything's or, or, online. Is everything's online. Is it all going to move to apps? Is it all going to move to content platforms like Netflix and Hulu? Like these are just fascinating questions. Um, and, it's, and it's good. You know, it's very good. And you can do things in television that you can't do in theater. Of course, you can do things in theater, you can't do television. But the idea of getting to spend potentially 100 hours with an audience, with those characters, with those stories, you, know, yeah. you can tell a story in depth in a way that you can't in the theater, and in, in you know, potentially a very like nuanced, complicated way.
1: Have you, so have you already worked in that format or screenwriting format, or you, are you just starting to dabble in it?
0: I've just started, you know, I've been writing pilots and I've been going uh-huh. out and taking meetings in LA and, um, and meeting the studios and producers, uh, and I, I haven't started sort of working on a show yet. I think part of that also is like if I'm in LA, it will you know, make it much easier so that sort of, yeah, of course. But I mean,
1: happen. like, just for you to even to sit down and be like, okay, what do I need to change in my brain yeah. if I'm gonna work today on writing something for screen instead of stage?
0: It's very different. I think the main difference for me is that, and you know, this might just be a personal thing, but when you're working on a uh, screenplay on television in particular, you pretty much outline the whole thing, right? You do the beat sheet, you know, like, what's act one, act two, act three, act four what goes where, and I, you know, you have the index card, you put them on the board. Right, right, right. When I'm writing a play, I have some idea of where it's going. I know who the characters are, but I just sort of start writing. And where it ends up going, you know, who could say. Uh, Which you can't really do in television, you know, primarily because you're spending someone else's money, Mm -hmm. and they want to know what's going to happen, as you, you know, it's totally understandable. (laughs) And in particular because if you're writing a multi-episode season... Then you have to have all of these things. You know, you can't just sort of like, all right, we'll, we'll see right. what happens. Right.
1: If you use all your good twists and turns yeah. in the
0: first season, there's nowhere. So to... many movie pieces. Nowhere to go. Um, so, and both of those are, are very different experiences and satisfying in different ways, I would say. Yeah.
1: And also, I'm sure it'll be interesting to find out, like working within a writer's room too, because I know people end up taking on individual episodes or being the lead writer on individual episodes, but you're also accountable to these mm-hmm. other people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very it's an interesting thing.
1: Which is maybe why playwrights are so well-suited. So many playwrights <laughs> I know really, from Juilliard are going out there, yeah. but so
0: because they're used worse, to collaborating. Writing, exactly. Yeah, like, directors. You, know, you, take, and, you take feedback from your directors, you go on your actors, um, and it's, it's actually very helpful in a way. Yeah.
1: Do you find that really exciting, that point of... Um, when rehearsals start, or you're done rewriting and you're handing over your child to <laughs> a group of done actors rewriting. and a director, I don't know what that means. <laughs> mostly done rewriting. <laughs> like I always, I always wonder. It must be a thin line between like so excited to see what they can add to it, and also like terrified that they're not going to do it the way you pictured it. It is. You
0: so know, the first day of rehearsal is. I don't know what it is. It's like. Um, you found out the day you're going to die. And so on the one hand, it's like really depressing, but you're also like, okay, good. Now, now this pressure is lifted and I can do whatever it's your I turn. Want. <laughs> yeah. um, it is, and, you know, it's, it's funny because it's hard to talk about it without sounding kind of like selfish and arrogant, but in your mind, of course you're like, Oh, I see it this way. Why aren't people doing it this way? Right. Uh, and it takes a while to get used to the fact that just because they're not doing it the way that you see it doesn't mean it's not working. It actually might be better, you know, uh, because we all have tunnel vision about these things to a certain extent, and it gets, you know, you, it gets very exciting when discoveries start being made in the room, and you're like, oh, I, I had no idea, uh, you know, primarily because it's impossible for you to see everything that you're doing, and there's so much stuff happening in your subconscious that's like on the page, but you're like, oh God, I didn't even know. how did right. they know? They figured it and out. And it's
1: from your point of view, obviously.
0: Exactly. Um, so it becomes, it becomes like a little treasure hunt. I mean, <laughs>
1: Yeah, I can't. I can't even imagine. That must be really exciting, especially when it's like opening night of a play, and you get to sit in the back of the, oh, man. the house and watch. Ooh, that's the worst.
0: <laughs> uh, it took me. It took me so many years to be able to do that without just being so drunk. <laughs> so drunk, I just couldn't get through it. Have uh, you have you had experiences with playwrights who. You can tell that they're like. Not happy with the way that you're doing something, but they won't maybe say it. You know, I
1: d- I don't know if I've had as much experience like fully producing new work as mm-hmm. as I would like, so I'm I'm not thinking about anything off the top of my head.
0: That's very diplomatic.
1: It's too. it's gonna. I'm sure I will at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I will at yeah. some point. Oh, th- this is just a big question on this podcast, but where are you with like? the struggle to define what success is in a healthy way in your life like it you know in an ideal world I think we'd all love to be like oh well success is blank you're getting paid millions of dollars but I don't think that's like that's not a healthy definition of success since it's not something that 99% of us will ever get so there's like this balance between celebrating your wins Mm -hmm. but you can't put everything into that or you're going to be sad the other 80% of the time.
0: I am in a transitional place with that. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with my psychoanalysis. <laughs> um, but y- yeah, I think I was I was raised by parents who were very hard workers and who were very successful and I think I internalized that work ethic and also the assumption that if you work hard enough and if you are and if you are good enough you will be successful. Right. there's like no it'll just ha- it'll happen right the world works that way and of course that's not the case i mean certainly not in a in a winner-take-all economy like the arts where there's very right. few racist people and everybody else at least that. not in a direct yeah. line and so that was where a lot of my you know where the dark place came from it's like oh if i'm not getting published if i'm not getting produced that means that a i'm either not talented i'm not working hard enough um or that like i'm just a bad person right something's wrong with right. me personally uh, and I I work very hard. And so all, the only thing I could imagine was that, like, oh, I'm just not very talented. I'm just not a good writer. Right. Uh, and all of this, you know, is sort of like the end point of the sort of capitalist ethos we live in, which is like, oh, well, if you're not making a lot of money, then you are worthless. Right. Right. And to a certain extent, the two, I mean, you know, success as a writer or as an artist in general, you want to say is being able to share your work. And that might not necessarily come in conjunction with making lots of money. It often doesn't. But Mm -hmm. also sometimes you don't even have the chance to share your work. Or sharing your work, certainly in theater, requires having some money in a way that, like, if you're a poet, you can just maybe email someone. (laughs) Um, So you have to get to a place where many artists say they have gotten, I don't quite believe them, but it's nice that they say it, where just doing the work is the reward. Now, I don't think it's ever going to be all of the reward, right. it's possible, but it has to be 75 to 80% of it, of just like, oh, I actually write because I really enjoy writing, and there's a part of me that's just, you know, creating other worlds, working things out in my head and getting those things on paper is incredibly fulfilling and exciting to me, and that's all very true, and I have to stop putting... 90% of the importance and the focus on the last 20%, which is like, well, who's going to do this? Someone else
1: giving you the, yeah. the check, the but check that's mark. That's
0: really hard. I think, you know, a lot of it's cultural. A lot of it's simply about, um, you know, the adulation you get when you're on stage and you're being applauded or you're sitting in the back watching your own play. And those things are so much more viscerally rewarding in a way. Um, uh, that, you know, I think part of it is like neurological of like, where's my, where's my serotonin? Why right. You know, and
1: from? you do want to enjoy those moments when they happen, but Absolutely. it can't, it can't be the only thing.
0: Yeah. I think of, um, I, I, I feel like that, you know, dude bringing up David Foster Wallace, but, uh, <laughs> there was, you know, David Foster Wallace talked about when Infinite Just came out and the trap you get into of, of reviews and people liking your work, because on the one hand don't want to get upset when people don't like your work, right? But that means you also can't really enjoy it when people like your work, because either, either <laughs> other people matter or they don't matter, right? And so you have to find a way to maintain this very even keel. And I think, uh, you know, you I, mean, I think we've all seen this, that people, when they get rejection artists, sort of go into two camps. There's like the grandiose camp grandiose camp of like, nobody understands me, why don't I get my chance? I'm a genius. And then there's the depressive camp of, like, oh my god, I'm terrible and worthless, I'm a piece of shit. Yeah. And, you know, it's somewhere in the middle. Because, on the one hand, uh, you know, there are so many things outside of your control about your work that you have, n- there's no way you can influence them. It's just impossible. And so, to a certain extent, you can be grandiose and be like, why is no, you know, I just, there's nothing I can do. People aren't giving me a shot. But it's also probably true that, like, yeah, you know what, maybe I could have done another revision. Maybe I could have worked a little bit harder. But it's about maintaining a healthy balance of those two things um and knowing that you know in the end if you don't love the fact that you're doing it without getting adulation without getting published then why are you doing it you know are you just doing it as a substitute for love
1: (laughs) yeah totally do what do you do outside of writing that you find some sort of uh like creative outlet in do you have any hobbies, God. other other art forms I don't know about, or I cooking?
0: I'm oh a terrible cook. I read a lot, mm-hmm. like non fiction, poetry. Like I, I love reading. Um, big museum junkie, film. But I, I should do more.
1: What are some uh, of your favorite books? museums in New York?
0: Um, I love the Cooper Hewitt, I have the Design Museum. I have, they look such interesting stuff there. Uh, love the MoMA, Frick all the big ones Guggenheim always has interesting things yeah all, all the ones that people already know about I'm not helping anybody at all <laughs> um, when I was a kid I played a lot of sports uh-huh. um, I played competitive tennis when I was a child and I also played a lot of soccer and I, I missed that you know I miss not only the athletics of it, but the sort of the community of it yeah and it is it's something that's like not art it's physical and it's mind it's you know mindless not in the negative sense but in the sense of like you, you are not self-conscious in a way because you're just executing that um, can be really wonderful. Like it's almost like kind of meditation.
1: Right, you just have to rely on your instincts. Yeah, it's just all or your reflexes. Of,
0: yeah, body memory. Uh, I miss that a lot. Do
1: you watch a lot of sports? All are of you into time. that? Yeah, all the time. See, Frankie has that too, and I, I'm very like scornful of it in some ways because it's just not a part of my yeah. life. But I do wish I had been on a soccer team when I was yeah. a kid or like the communal story. the communal part of like Sunday football
0: absolutely I, meant to, I went to go see um, the Wolves uh, at the Playwrights Realm which is fabulous and if it's still playing when this comes out people should go see it uh, and it's about a uh, young woman's soccer team and they're like 16 like, juniors in high school and it took me back just like immediately to all those days on the field uh, it's so good and it, it, it was really warm Mm-hmm. You know, it took me to this place. And it's like, oh, I miss that. But
1: I mean, then, I guess that's a similar thing of like, I grew up doing theater, so that exactly. was my communal you activity, go. you know.
0: Yeah. And I think that's another downside of living in New York is that's harder. Yeah. If you want to do play tennis or well, the tennis courts are few and far between and expensive. Expensive. Uh, you know, it's hard to get big fields and things together. Um, I, I miss that too. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, we just kind of talked about this a little bit, but on, on those days where you really are feeling. Like, in the dark side, depressed, uninspired. Like, are there um, concrete things that you reach for again and again? Like, a specific book or an album you listen to or someone you call?
0: No, I wouldn't say specifics. I go for a walk. Mm-hmm. That's very helpful. Um, Walt Whitman is a big help. Leaves of Grass always always gets me back. Gets me mm-hmm. going. I recently was rereading Stephen King's On Writing.
1: I just read it for the first time. So good, because someone else had recommended it. Yeah, it
0: has a lot of just really concrete advice. And sometimes, you know, it sounds so silly, but um, Laurie Moore's Bird by Bird is good for this, too. Is it Laurie Moore? No. Um, Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, sorry. Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird Uh and Stephen King on writing. They just, they're books that literally they say at one point, like, you have permission. Go be imaginative go spend your time daydreaming and staring out the window and, you know, just thinking about stuff. And I never felt like I had that permission. The other part of it for me is like, I have a hard time thinking that if I'm not literally doing some kind of physical labor, even if it's writing down things on a page, I'm not working. Mm. Daydreaming doesn't feel like work to me. And that's, that's a problem because it is right. Like 50% of writing is just like thinking about stuff and watching other people and staring out the window and fantasizing. Uh, and I I often get down on myself if I'm not turning out 10 pages a day.
1: Right, right, right. This is extremely obvious, but I was also just delighted at how funny and well-written Stephen King's writing was. Oh, it's so funny. It's just, like, so concisely written and yeah. delightful. I was like, this is amazing. I
0: also, I, I was in a book the other day, and I bought the version from way back when, when the cover was, like, a picture of a clapboard house. Now the picture is him in his office, and he has a little corgi, and I think the fact that he a corgi is just hilarious, because it's so precious, and, like, he's so dark, but also hilarious, and it's great. Yeah. He's, he's so smart. I happened to be watching television the other day, and this movie from this late 70s, early 80s, called Christine came on, mm-hmm. which is about a car that is evil and comes to life and kills people, and I had never heard of it or seen it, um, but it's just, as a sort of allegory of, of the American obsession with automobiles is just like so great <laughs> and he's I think he does get a lot of credit he's a smart guy I love him
1: and then have you seen anything else recently that you'd like to recommend
0: Ooh, let's see the, the season just started what I, I'll see what I want to see um Signature is doing uh the Susan Laurie Parks season which is actually gonna be amazing yeah across.
1: I want to see all of um, those shows
0: there's also a new play and Manny Baker plays some great stuff um Simon McBurney from Capricite has a play has a piece on Broadway called The Encounter okay um which sounds fantastic if you want to see that what else oh I guess and everything at band Next nice wave
1: yeah. yeah 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 well thank you so much it's a, a, a delight a delight Thank you for listening to The Compass Podcast. I'm Leah Walsh. More episodes are coming soon. Please look for us on Facebook and iTunes. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller. Music by Brendan Spieth. Audio assistance from Nick Choksi. And a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time.
0: Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.
1: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.